On this episode of The Ethics Experts, we got Reed Blackman. This guy is super smart. We talk about AI, generative AI. We talk about his book, Ethical Machines. We even incorporate some art discussion, some philosophy discussion, the ethics of layoffs, uh, how to use AI, and what to look out for when you're building your ethical AI policy. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey everybody, welcome to the Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, if you're a returning subscriber, hey friend, hope you're having a great day. You see what happens when you subscribe to the Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button as we change the world by fixing our workplaces. I got a treat for you. Every week I say this, but I really mean it this time. Uh, I got my man Reed Blackman here. He is the founder and CEO of Virtue. It's an AI um, ethical risk consultancy, and he wrote this really cool book called Ethical Machines, which was published by Harvard Business Review. He's a uh, he's been on um, the Ethics Verse. We had a really cool session talking about uh, the ethics of AI, and we're going to kind of dive into that uh, some more today. He's um, I don't know. He's somebody that I've stolen a lot of uh, talk tracks from and uh, learned a lot from. So. Uh, hoping to get some more so I can continue to hopefully sound smart as I talk to other people. What's going on, Reed? How's it going? Good, Glad man. you uh, give you something to steal. <laughs> so, uh, so what's been going on since last time we, we talked? Your, your book has been out. I know you've been on some more podcasts and some more webinars and stuff like that. What, what have you been, you know, what's happening in the new, in the world of uh, AI and how has what you've talked about in your book continued, you know, how, how have you continued to see that in the marketplace? Yeah, I mean, it's growing. The the attention, level of attention, level of anxiety has grown quite a bit, probably since last we spoke. I don't remember. Was it? I think it was before GPT. It was. Is that, is that right? Or have I made that up? Yeah. Or like so GPT was just kind of starting. Right. So it wasn't. So now, you know, things all have really heated up. I have a lot of clients who have gotten very worked up about generative, generative, um, generative AI. So for what I'm seeing in the marketplace with clients, things like that, is that they're building what I call an AI ethical risk program, what more corporate people would call a responsible AI program. Uh, and they're really uh, leading that program, leading the development of that program with a focus on what do we need to do within the next three to six months around generative AI. I had one client say something that uh, has really stuck with me, Fortune 500 company, and she said, you know, we, we don't have any fires going on right now, but everyone's holding a flamethrower. And so we need to do something about that. That's a pretty good analogy. So that's, and that's sort of a, a nice way of, I think, capturing sort of the state of play now with, you know, mostly enterprise, Fortune 500 clients. Yeah. What do you think about, like, what's going on in Italy where they've essentially, like, outlawed it? Like, do you think that's a sustainable, um, like, just what's your kind of opinion well, of that? I haven't followed it that closely. I mean, I was well aware of it when when they first when Italy first banned GPT over privacy and cybersecurity concerns. Like they were leaking, there was leaking up chats to other people. They leaked payment information, uh, and then there was concerns around the IP that was used to train Chat GPT. They banned it. They gave OpenAI thirty days. I'm pretty sure OpenAI complied with all that. I believe that the ban has been lifted. I was really surprised by that. I thought that was sort of arguably too big of a move. So look. One thing that everyone is paying attention to in the world of AI is the EU's AI Act. So that's the regulation that's coming out of the EU that should, you know, in, in, in an ideal world, dictate how companies will govern their AI, so roughly, something like that. And they do have a category of banned AI, certain kinds of banned AI. And it was more like social credit risk scores, stuff, stuff like that, uh, sorry, social credit scores. But GPT doesn't, doesn't rise to that level. Right. 
So I can understand putting them under investigation, looking at them with a magnifying glass, requesting certain kinds of materials, et cetera. The move to ban it right out of the gate was surprising to me because it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it meets that level of should be banned, even by the even if you even if the act had passed by now, which it hasn't, it still wouldn't reach that level. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like uh, I don't know. I don't know what the like analogy is uh, historically, but it's just like, well, we're just not even going to mess with it at all. Um, when you're when you're talking about your you know, when you're talking to your Fortune 500 clients who are talking about everybody has a flamethrower and we don't have a fire yet. Um, how are how are you kind of advising them? about how to kind of navigate through this in terms of, you know, I presume policy creation, responsible AI use in the organization. Is it an education thing? Is it a controls thing? Is it a mix of both? Like how do, how are folks kind of like surfing this, this wave? Yeah. So I'd say the, the work we do with those clients falls into four buckets, one of four buckets. One is something like an assessment of where you are now. So some of them, when they come to us, they already have something like a responsible AI program or an AI ethics program. It's sort of early stages ish. Um, or they have nothing at all. Um, and then we do an assessment and we say, okay, here's where we see the biggest gaps. Here's where you see red, yellow, green. Here's the kinds of things that you should really prioritize. So that's one bucket that a lot of them come to us with. They want to know where do we stand right now? You know, are we cutting edge? Are we way behind? Are we sort of middle of the pack? And what are the biggest risks that we face? So assessment is a big thing. Uh, learning and development is a big thing. What's really interesting about L&D is that that used to sort of come more towards the end where we build an AI ethical risk program, a responsible AI program, and then you want to educate your people on the nature of the program, what they need to know in their capacity, you know, given the role that they occupy, whether they're a data scientist or an HR or marketing or in cyber or legal, whatever. Um, but what's happened with generative AI is that that education component has been moved to the front because they have access to it now. Before it was like, you know, when we talked about democratizing AI, we talked about non-data scientists using some tools to create models that were still relatively technical that you'd probably have some data scientists working with you and building it, something like that, because the non-data scientist knows the business problem. They have some training or other around or access to um, low code or no code AI tools. But now with generative AI, particularly GPT 4.0 is found in Bing or BARD, for instance, I mean, GPT is not in BARD, but GPT yeah, yeah. as found in Bing, comma, BARD, any large language model, it's just everyone's got access to it. Anyone right. can use it. There's not a tool to build a model. It's just using an AI tool right out, right out of the box, so to speak. So educating people about what the risks are has become prioritized relative to where it was before. And then the other two kinds of things that we do is building that, which you can call AI ethical risk infrastructure, the kinds of things that you were talking about. What does governance look like? Uh, policies, procedures, workflows, tools, metrics, KPIs, QA, QI, that sort of stuff. And then the final bucket of things is integrating it with, or integrating it throughout the enterprise. So, you know, you're a Fortune 5, you're a multinational company, you've got probably have enterprise, you have enterprise risk categories, but you have the way that data scientists are doing their thing. You've got ESG departments or department and you have sustainability and you want to, to the best you can, at least this is what we recommend to clients. You want to integrate how you design and track and improve that program in a way that's commensurate with how you design, track, ESG, sustainability, et cetera. So you're harmonizing everything. So 
it could, your AI ethics program can play nicely in a dashboard that is showing metrics and KPIs around ESG sustainability, operational metrics, business metrics, et cetera. Yeah, just so it doesn't get kind of siloed, but that the same sort of like mental, whatever frameworks are consistently applied across mm -hmm. these different areas. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. When, I mean, it is kind of nuts, right? Because I mean, last time we talked, I mean, I mean, since, since we talked last time, there's just been this massive explosion and like everybody's yeah. using this. Um, it was interesting to see sort of that like fall off, you know, I'm sure you've seen the graph of like chat GPT usage, how it came and sort of it, it, it kind of fell off a, a little bit. And that's probably, you know, I think due to just people kind of dipping their toe in and being like, ah, cool, but yeah. not, not really nerding out on it. But then you still have those sort of like <laughs> yeah. core group of like, like early adopters who are just using it for everything. And I've seen this, this huge right. separate, like the percentage of people in my, in my team that have used it is probably you know, 80%, but then there's that core group of probably 30 or 40% that are using it for all kinds of stuff to like create more leverage in their work. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm generally unimpressed by this. Oh, it's, it's trended down. They have fewer users. That's, that's too short sighted a way of looking at things. Yep. So for one, you do still have those, those, even if it's, let's say it's 10% of employees. Okay. But if you've got a hundred thousand employees, that's 10,000 employees messing around with something. So that's, that's pretty significant, I would say. So that's one thing to mention. Another thing to mention is that those people who used it and then stopped using it, stopped using it because they couldn't really figure out how to use it for their purposes, which doesn't mean that they won't learn or figure it out, won't be told by one of those early users, those, those people who figure it out, the 10% who stay on, figure things out, and then tell those colleagues who gave up on it three months ago, hey, did you know that you could do, use it for this? Right. And then, so there's going to be you know education around it by peers, peer-to-peer education, but here's things that you could use it for. That's that. So that's another factor that matters. Another factor that matters is that the there are loads of developers, uh, companies, consultancies, take your McKinsey, Deloitte, EY, BCG, whatever, all of those massive consulting, consultancies, Accenture, they're building these products for their clients, right? They're, they're, they're taking an LLM or a mid-journey, whatever, and they're refining them in various ways to be appropriate for they hope their clients so the i would you know i want to see next to that graph of individuals decline in use i want to see that next to uh you know a graph that represents the money that companies are pouring into this i want to i want to see <laughs> right. a graph that shows how many llm products companies are pitching to clients uh you know vendors are pitching to client potential clients i suspect that the graph goes the opposite way yeah the absolutely goes the opposite way it's totally parabolic 100 percent um, I mean, there's just so much going on and it's like, I can't even keep up with it. Um, I follow some people on Twitter who are like these mid journey experts and like the stuff that they're ripping out is just absolutely Bonkers. wild. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they're like dialing in these prompts and, um, I file, I follow this one guy who's just been documenting over the last several months, like his mid journey journey. And, um, I mean, I, you know, I just, I, I almost can't think about like, I can't even think of like a group or a job that is not like at least at some level threatened by this. Like models are threatened for sure. Writers are absolutely totally. threatened, threatened for sure. Yeah. You know, like writers of derivative garbage are definitely threatened. Well, that's <laughs> which is probably most writers. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you said that because uh, I saw during this writer strike that, you know, someone was saying, you know, I'm really concerned about like the plagiarism that is going to be coming out of the use of these tools to write, you know, um, to write screenplays or, you know, yeah. whatever. And, uh, I saw an ad for, or I saw an article, 
uh, and by article, of course, I mean tweet about a uh, <laughs> uh, a job post for um, Netflix to be like an AI like writer, and it you know it was yeah. like for 190 grand or something, and it was making the point that the average actor is only making like 26 grand or something like that. But it's funny like, when yeah, you yeah. think about that like concern for plagiarism when you see what Hollywood has ripped out over the last you know 10 years. It's all yeah. remakes and toy based things, and you know all those things are at some level yeah. derivatives. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, look, there's something can be inspired by without being derivative, but yeah, everyone knows there's lots of garbage. I mean, you can't have, you know, all these content platforms, uh, you know, and not, you know, you got a pipeline to fill. You got to come up with new stuff. You can't just have, you know, the same show on the featured, you know, bar. It's got to change like, you know, every, every few days, but you know, that means you got to feed the beast. And if you're going to feed the beast and speed matters, uh, then quality is probably gonna go down. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it kind of, you know, um, it kind of introduces this question of like, is, are those pictures that that guy is generating or like, if, is something that you make with, uh, mid journey, is that art? Do you own that? And I would yeah, kind yeah. of argue that it is. What would what, you say? Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's, a, there's this, and you know, I have a, I was a philosophy professor for 10 years. My PhD is in philosophy. I'm down to do philosophy 100%. That said, the question does it, is it art? is a philosophical question that I think in, in some sense doesn't matter. What's going to matter is, you know, whether we categorize it as art or not, I think what's going to matter is something like, does this person deserve compensation for what they've done? Uh, do they deserve praise for what they've done? Okay. Do they, you know, what, like, what sort of attitude should we have towards the person who created this using generative AI? And that question seems to me more, in some ways more interesting and more pressing than the, if you like, academic question, not uninteresting, but, Academic, is it art? Well, call it what the hell you want. The question is, did this person just type in like, you know, draw me picture in the style of so-and-so that looks like this, and then they hit enter, and then they published it. You might be like, well, that doesn't impress us. But if they took it as a sort of, they did that, took that as their as their raw material, their their canvas, so to speak, was in blank. It was generated by, the, the canvas has some content generated by AI by their prompt. And then they do some stuff with that. Well, then what did they do with it? Was it impressive or not impressive? When Andy Warhol took existing imagery and did something with it, do we think that what he did with it was impressive, interesting, cool, you know, aesthetically valuable? Or do we think it's, you know, that was stupid, he didn't do anything? And then we can have, you know, loads of debates about that. But I think I think it's, you know, the question is what attitudes should we have towards the people who use it? AI in these ways to produce whatever they produce, something like that. Yeah, I I get that that distinction, and I think you're right. Um, the first question was a little bit philosophical and like kind of who cares, um, but we. I'm, no, no, I'm down. I'm down with it. Like like I said, no, not who cares? But I don't think it needs to be question number one when people are talking about generative AI. Like, is it is it art? Yeah, and I just kind of love that whole debate of like if it's art, I think it's art and arts in the eye of the beholder. And uh, if you think it's cool and it moves you, then then it could be art and it could be, you know, someone defecating on a canvas or something. Maybe that could be art. I, I, I wouldn't go that far. See, let's see now now we're getting into the philosophical debate. I don't think that's right. I mean I just think people can get be, be deceived or, you know, confused that something is art when it's not. Um I went to yeah. a modern art museum once and um there was this like uh I mean it must have been a twenty yard installation. And the installation was literally against the wall, a single thread or a a red yarn that ran all the way across the wall and about 95% across this this area. It just dropped straight down at a right angle. And then there was a pile of maybe 20 
20 feet of yarn below it. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, man, this guy, I was like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool. But I just felt like this guy had an installation due tomorrow. And he's like, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so, so I, 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 I'm sort of on the same page as you kind of like, I wish I, I feel like there's something I'm missing. Here's the thing about art. Art is tricky because look, it requires some degree of expertise. So like, it's not, there's, there's sensitivity to certain facts or certain aspects of the thing that you might not, I say you, I mean, one, me yeah. included, might not be sensitive to like, oh, they're doing something. Mm -hmm. We don't see what they're doing because we don't know the, the art historical context in mm -hmm. which it's been done. We don't get it, that it's part of a conversation. And it's the conversation that looks to, like, my children will hear me talking about ethicsy stuff or they see me on TV and they're like, I don't get it, it's stupid, it's boring. Now, they might be right, but part of me wants to say, well, you just don't get it. You're like kids, you're, you know, you're eight, you're, you're don't, you don't get that world yet. And so with the red yarn thing, I know we've sort of strayed far from the AI thing, but with art, when you reach a certain level, if you're not sort of sufficiently familiar with what's going on in that world, it's going to look stupid and boring and irrelevant. And so when I see these pieces of yarn thumbtacked to a, my gut reaction is this is so stupid. This is dumb. Right. This is not art. It's, and then I just sort of think, okay, well, maybe this, my reaction is trading on my own ignorance of the facts. And I just don't know. Yeah. That said, I don't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, I had a buddy or I have a buddy um, and he just like loves death metal. And I was always like, I could never wrap my head, my head around it. That's not any kind of music that I ever, you know, listen yeah. to. And, you know, I, I really kind of sat down with him and like kind of picked his brain. I was like, what do you, you know, I don't get this. Like, obviously, obviously, like there's some ignorance in me that I can't appreciate this. And then he started breaking it down to me. He's like, this is like the most tech technical music. And here's, you know, here's my favorite band. And this guy came up as like, you know, he was doing, I don't know, whatever, like whatever the hardest music was, you know, symphony yeah. music or like, you know, whatever he ended up kind of growing into this because it was so technical. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. okay, like that's just something that I was kind of deaf to, you know what I'm saying? And I think a lot of that yeah. to your point is in there. On the other hand, like at some level, I kind of don't care if it's art or not. Like there's this one documentary um, called Exit Through the Gift Shop. Have you seen that? It's about Banksy. Yeah, I have. Yeah. And so like the bad guy in that was this guy called Mr. Brainwash. And he basically figured out yeah, a way yeah. to like, to like mass produce all this right? like Banksy stuff. And yeah. like, it's the, it was yeah. this, this whole debate I was debating with like this other friend. I'm like, well, that's not art because he's just like mass producing. And it's like, well, I don't know. All the art that like we see today from the Renaissance and all that those were all commissions. Like guys were getting paid for that. And if he figured out a way to mass produce right. it, like, is it necessarily not art because he just was directing these people? I don't know. You know? Yeah. I, I, I know that there's a sort of a, a familiar kind of example in the, in the world of philosophy of art where you take, well, for one, you just get people's intuitions about the difference between a real Rembrandt and one that was painted last night by a, a for it's a forgery by a, right. forger, a forger, a forger. A forger. Yeah. <laughs> And and I think usually people think, oh no, the Rembrandt, the, the real the, the real one is the aesthetically valuable one, even though it's indistinguishable because the forger does such a great job. Still, it's a fake, and the other one is real, and there's value in that. So that's that's one kind of example. Another another kind of example is you're walking, you know, someone is walking in a room with a bunch of paint cans. They trip, they knock over a bunch of paint cans. It spills onto the canvas. It looks indistinguishable from a Jackson Pollock. Uh, is it as valuable as aesthetically interesting, et cetera, as a Jackson Pollock piece? And I think most people think no. And then the question is why? And one reason, one sort of 
one, I think, popular theory in the philosophy of art is that because in order for the work to have its meaning, it has to be directly linked to something like the mental attitudes of the psychology of the creator in some kind of quasi-intentional way. Even if they're, so, right. even if they're expressing their subconscious emotions, it's still somehow ex expressive of them in some way or other. And the uh, spilled paint cans lack that connection to a mental state, yeah, to a psych There's no intention state. behind it. They weren't necessarily trying to create that. Uh, which is just right. kind so of an interesting, the, exactly. maybe meaningless distinction at, at some level, right? Well, again, you know, a lot of people put a lot of value in, you know, it's yeah, actually painted right. by Picasso versus it's not painted by Picasso. It's a forgery. Yeah, which is, uh, And so you might think, I'll try to bring it back to AI stuff. Yeah. And so you might wonder, do we, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's an artist. I actually did a, a podcast with him. Um, I have a podcast called Ethical Machines where we talked about exactly this. And, you know, he said, this is, you know, one of the things helps to do is to test how much we really care about process when it comes to the generation of art. Right. Do we really value the process or is it just the outcome? Yeah. And which kind of leads to this kind of question about like the performative nature of art. Like, is it just the performance itself or is it the sort of the whole story around the performance that allows us or that gives, you know, that performance like its value? You know what I'm saying? Right. And look, when you go to, a, when you go to an art museum, they don't just hang the things on the wall and that's it. Right. There's usually, there's like, there's usually some kind of there's a bit of history about right. the piece and next to it there's a little placard that's giving you the art. now i think generally art museums do a terrible job of this because they just go as facts that don't connect mm -hmm. i don't think they connect enough enough dots for us standardly like me i just don't most of the time i just don't get it and i read the placard and i'm like i still don't get it and so i think they could do a better job but i know that they think that understanding the history or the context is crucial to understanding or appreciating What's going on in the what's going on in the piece? Yeah, I mean, if you look at a Grandma Moses without the background, you might be like, "Oh, whose kid drew that? You know, whose kid whose kid uh, painted that painting?" You know I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so somebody yesterday, uh, we, had, we we had a webinar, and um, they asked this question, and I thought it was kind of interesting, and it, it was something like, "How does AI allow for us to like have more meaning and purpose in our work?" And how would you it answer doesn't. that? It doesn't. Okay, <laughs> it doesn't. interesting. Why, why would it? Well, why would it? I mean. Look, okay, look, here's a possibility. This is a standard line that people like to run. AI does the monotonous stuff, and so it frees us from the monotonous stuff so that we can do the more, we have time to do the more creative stuff. I mean, maybe that's true in some cases. I'm sure that it's true in some cases. Frankly, I don't think most people are very are that creative. <laughs> they just got like this creative mind bursting with ideas. They're at a job. They're at a job. They're doing the thing. They like the people well enough. They, the job is good enough. The pay is good enough. It's too much effort to move jobs. Uh, it's too risky. Uh, they're comfortable. So like, uh, you know, and, and, the, and, you know, they find meaning elsewhere. They don't look to work for their meaning. They go to their family. They go to their friends. They go to their hobbies or whatever. You know, I think, you know, but, the, you know, I think that people can be really loud about expressing human creativity, but those, and you're reading this stuff, but you're, it's selection bias because the people who are writing that stuff are creative enough to be writing the stuff. Great point. <laughs> they're, they're, they're the creative. So of course, they're like, oh, it's going to freeze through all the creative stuff. I don't think most people are just banging down the door to be creative. Yeah, that's probably true. And I think, you know, on balance, most people are probably not finding this deep level of fulfillment from their job. To your point, it's just an aspect of their lives. You know, most people like. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's. No, no, sorry. I think it's, it's, it's probably like, you know, I'm not a. I'm not a historian by any means or a sociologist or something like that, but I think it's fair to say that 
finding meaning in work is it's a cultural phenomenon. I mean, you know, you might think, you know, here's 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 a place where you might really find meaning in life for a lot of people in the world. Religion. Mm -hmm. That's where the meaning is. You go to the store, you sell the stuff, and that's fine. That's good. That's important. So that you, as a, but it's important as a means to an end. We we go to work and we make the money and we sell the things or whatever it is, so that we can spend time with our family, go to church, give money to church, donate to charity, blah blah blah, whatever. Let's say it's a, re a religious life, whatever that means, a devout a devout life. You're not looking to work necessarily to get your meaning. You're looking somewhere else. And I think that's that's perfectly fine. You don't have to look. I I get tons of meaning, for lack of a better word, out of my out of my work. I mean, but I don't think that's you know. I feel like I'm really lucky. But you know, I do something that's highly idiosyncratic. It's creative. It speaks to my intellectual interests. Blah 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 blah. But most people don't do that, and that's fine. They don't need to get meaning out of their work. They need to like it well enough. <laughs> that's that's I think the bar as long as they get meaning from somewhere else. Which which is kind of a pretty powerful reframe. Um, just to kind of explore that a little bit, um, because that is kind of like a meme now, right? Uh, and I'm perhaps guilty of it as well. Like I want people to come and I want them to bring their whole selves to work and come to a culture where they can be themselves and put That's whatever. That's crazy. Though. I mean, <laughs> no, go ahead. go ahead. You can't really bring your whole self to work, right? Like the, the, the person that you're with, with your significant other or your best friend is not the person that you are when you're at work. Well, that's and not even your probably, whole self, though. It would probably be inappropriate. That's <laughs> fine. But, but, but also, like, yeah. you're never really your whole self unless, I mean, even with your wife, you're not your whole self. With your best friend, there's still pieces of yourself that, like, you shave off, right? But yeah, the as aspects of your personality you don't express. Sure. So, I mean, I, mean, I think you want to go to work, you don't have to, like, hide. You don't want to hide things about yourself. You don't have to feel ashamed. You know, you want the absence of shame for certain aspects of yourself. That's right. that seems sufficient, as opposed to like, I, I not as like romantic the, you know, though. That's not as a romantic I know, thing to say. <laughs> I'm 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 not a romantic type. You know, it's like when I talk about AI ethics, I make this distinction between AI for good and AI for not bad. AI for good is about positive social impact using the powerful tool that is AI. AI for not bad is risk mitigation. It's how do you not ethically, reputationally, regulatorily, legally screw up when you're deploying AI, whether you've designed it in-house or whether you've procured it. And that's the frame that I think businesses should prioritize for both ethical and business reasons. And I sort of think the same about a lot of this stuff, you know, like, uh, like what we're talking about here. It's like, do we really need to bring our whole selves to work? I mean, that's like a bit much as opposed to, you know, <laughs> Don't come, don't come to work feeling ashamed. <laughs> don't feel shamed at work. That's enough. <laughs> yeah. But also, I mean, at a different level, I mean, that, that might cut down to a more, uh, I don't know. I mean, there is some like romanticism in that for lack of a better term. Like, like people want to feel connected to something. I think people don't want to feel to your point ashamed for where they came from or the background that they've had sure. or whatever, like they're whatever's going on with their marriage or something like they want to, you know, it is one life to some degree. Obviously we're never bringing our whole selves. I don't think really anywhere. Sure. Um, yeah. But I, but you know, I, 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 as I've been kind of thinking about what you said, I kind of like that frame. Like people shouldn't feel ashamed at work and, yeah. you know, in the same breath though, I think people shouldn't feel ashamed for not feeling the, you know, this deep fulfillment from what they're doing. If, Oh, if work to them is only this one sort of aspect of their life, that's fine. If it's sort of good enough and provides enough value to the organization just to get super like economic about it, you know, that there's kind of room for a bunch of, you know, it's totally. kind of a wide yeah. spectrum I'm not to your point. Yeah, yeah. I'm not prescribing anything. In fact, if anything, I'm sort of the, I'm the anti-prescriber in this, in this context. I mean, yeah. You know, it opens it up a lot. I wouldn't, 
Right. I wouldn't prescribe. Look, you got to find meaning in your work. No, you don't. <laughs> if, if you do, great. If you don't, okay. I hope that, you know, you get meaning from somewhere else, but it's not that everything that you do has got to have like this meaning and, you know, yeah. work would be a great place because for the simple reason that you spend so much time doing it. So in terms of how you allot your time, it makes, it, it would be wonderful. It's great if you can find meaning in work. I just don't think it's, let me put it this way. I don't think it's a necessary condition for living well, for living a good life. I yeah. To live a good life, even though your work is sort of like, yeah, I like it just fine. It's not yeah. where I get my meaning from. It's something I got to do. It's like cutting the grass. You don't find meaning in cutting the grass or going to the grocery store. And that's fine yeah. if you don't bring your whole self to Whole Foods. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, look, again, let's take the comparison to religion. I'm not a religious person, but take the comparison. You tell the religious person, I'll give you a million dollars a year if you leave the church or whatever it is. And they're going to say, no, that's not, it's too meaningful. Right. I'm not. Go to your average, go to 99% of people with a job and say, I'm going to give you a million dollars a year if you leave your job. How many of them are going to be like, no, my work is too meaningful. I'm not going to take that million a year. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, okay. It's going to be everybody so, almost. You're right. So it's not that, it's not that meaningful. And I also think probably there's a story that people tell themselves. There's a lot of self-deception. Like this is really meaningful to me, but they have to tell themselves that because well, they don't have to, but they, they, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a comforting belief to have. And so people adopt it. Yeah. I don't know. We started, no, we this is great. No, no. We'll AI bring it back. risk programs in the fortune 500. <laughs> we're we're about, going everywhere, man. We're not perceived masses. This, <laughs> uh, this podcast is not that prescriptive either. You know what I'm saying? We're going to go where it goes. <laughs> um, but I like that framework that you have for, let's go over that again. AI for, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it. Um, but AI for not good or no AI for good, but also AI for not bad. Well, so yes, AI for good versus AI for not bad. So people talk about AI ethics and then there's different kinds of people in that space. And some of them are talking about leveraging the power of AI for positive social impact. Positive social impact means different things, but often it might, it refers to something like pursuing the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals, the SDGs, something along those lines. That's all good and well. That's not core operations. Right? Core right. operations of, of, uh, is, not, is not about positive social impact. It's about making stuff that, your people, that people will buy or providing services that people will buy. AI for not bad, that's the phrase that you know, leads my work, is we're going to do what we're going to do from a business perspective. Maybe those goals are ethically good. Maybe those goals are ethically neutral. Let's hope at, at a bare minimum they're not straight up ethically bad. They're not evil. Given that we're going to pursue those goals, how do we do it in a way that's on the ethical up and up? Right. How do we do it in a way that's compatible with our ethical, reputational, regulatory, legal, business risk appetite? It's a, it's a bit more pragmatic. It's not romantic to your, to your earlier point. But it's actionable. It's just, hey, let's not, you know. It's actionable, exactly. I mean, one, it's, it's very actionable, I think. Um, one thing that I think it helps you to do is the first thing that, you know, I'll talk about with clients is, well, what, what are you, what's the red line? What, when we say not bad, what are the guardrails? What are, the, what are your ethical nightmares? What are the ethical nightmares that you need to avoid? What are the ethical nightmares with regards to data collection? What are your ethical nightmares with regards to, uh, you know, distributing goods and services? It's going to be something around discrimination. That's we can define what those are, and then we can put controls in place to likely to, to drastically decrease the likelihood of those things happening. It's very actionable, and it lends itself to things like you know doing things like metrics, make KPIs, tracking progress, tracking compliance, quality improvement, that sort of thing. Uh, I was talking to a guy uh, who was on uh, the webinar, our webinar series, the Ethics Verse, and he was telling the story about how he landed 
uh, you know, after a flight in the airport and everything was closed except for McDonald's and he went up there to order and, you know, basically he got a whole meal from a robot. And he was talking about how uh, if we're not careful, this AI is going to leave a whole group of people behind. And I find that kind of an interesting argument. I hadn't really thought about it um, from that perspective. And, you know, what he was saying is like it's it's perhaps unethical to use this AI to sort of lead to ultimately – you know, job elimination, what we should really be more concerned about is maintaining the jobs we have and making sure people don't get left behind so that those people can do more, you know, so that that organization can be more, more, more sure. productive. Um, yeah. What do you think about that? Because I think there's some there's some like second and third like layer assumptions and kind of arguments embedded in that in that position, you know? Yeah. It depends on the, the, the content of the we when we say we shouldn't leave those people behind. Is the we McDonald's? Is the we what society at large? Is the we government? What do we? Who's, yeah, who's, who's the we? we? Right. I generally don't think so. Here, here's here's a, what I take to be a standard sort of shared view among people: businesses don't have an ethical obligation to hire people. They don't have an ethical obligation to hire people. And then I think it it's a it's a it's a short skip from they don't have an ethical obligation to hire people to they don't have an ethical obligation to keep people on when they could replace them with more efficient means when they don't, when they don't need them anymore. Let's just say that when they, they don't have an obligation to, to, to keep people on board when they no longer need them. I think that's, I think that's probably true. Um, I sort of thought this is, I checked it with a couple of my friends thought, you know, thought, what do they, what do they think? And they're a disagreeable bunch. So, but they all agreed. Um, I'm sure that some people disagreed. Something that people think businesses do have an ethical obligation to keep people on, even though they no longer have a need for them. But that's I, that's probably the exception to the rule. So let's assume, for the sake of argument, that no individual business has an obligation to hire people or to keep people on when they're no longer needed. That's just sort of not among their ethical obligations. If you're going to hire them, you have ethical obligations to treat them well, not to mistreat them. Blah 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 blah. You have an ethical obligation to not discriminate in your hiring process. But you know that's distinct from whether you have an ethical obligation to hire them anyone in the first place. Let's suppose for the sake of argument that AI results in pretty massive job loss. That wouldn't be because the companies defaulted on their obligations to hire people or keep them employed because they don't have any, I don't think. So it strikes me as a societal problem. And then the question is, is this anyone's responsibility? And if so, whose? Then the answer seems to be, well, if, if it's anyone's responsibility, it's got to be the government's. I mean, if the government has any function at all – it's to protect people. It's to protect its citizens from, say, destitution, from economic catastrophe, which in turn massively impacts people's ability to, to lead lives, to in some cases to survive, in other cases to lead lives worth living. So it is a shame. It's too bad when people lose their jobs. We should greet that with compassion. And then I think we have to th we have to think about well what do we do about this? And I think the we is going to be something like what do we think government should do about this? Yeah, and how do we prevent the governmental response um, in protection of the sort of societal impact that you're alluding to here falling into just you know you remember like the the luddites I think they're called that they would go yeah, and just smash the luddites yeah, yeah they just go and smash machines because. Those machines were sort of eliminating jobs. I mean, isn't that kind of the story with yeah, it? Exactly. People think it was like an anti-technology thing. It was it was a jobs thing. It yeah. was a jobs thing. So, like, you know, from that perspective, then perhaps the um, the Italian response, which again, I'm not really sure how that all sorted out, um, 
perhaps that was sort of justified from a societal perspective. I get the argument for the for the Italian thing was more about security and all that other stuff, but like if the terminus of that was, uh, I mean, one could at least argue that then this could lead to sort of a governmental response to say, well, well, we need to kind of shut this down because this is going to deteriorate and massively separate all these other people. Yeah, I mean, that might be a good short-term solution. It's an empirical claim whether it would be a good long-term solution. I suspect it's not, though, because it's one government among many. Other governments will say, let a thousand flowers bloom, go, 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 go. And right. they'll innovate in various ways. They'll move ahead, economically speaking. The country that stopped innovating completely and stopped adopting new innovations is going to fall down economically. Right. That's going to have a really bad impact on people. So probably that's not the route. I mean, I don't know. You could imagine things like government incentives to corporations to retrain and upskill people. So okay. Okay. corporations might not be under any obligation, any ethical obligation to hire people or to retrain or upskill or educate them. But maybe governments give something like a tax incentive, a tax break for money spent towards reskilling or up, up, upskilling, retraining, educating employees who lost their jobs to due to advanced technology, something along those lines. Yeah, and that could sort of gently guide guys uh, to create, you know, by creating those incentives to help sort of prevent this, you know, potentially inevitable negative outcome. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's a silver bullet. Uh, I don't, I don't even know if that's plausible, but it seems to me like that kind of thing, that in concert with, you know, four, five, six, seven, whatever other initiatives might be an effective way, you know, might in, in aggregate be a way of, of solving for the problem as best we can. One thing I'll say that I really don't like, and this this makes perfect, this is worth raising on something called the Ethics Expert Podcast, is people will say, well, it's going to create more jobs than it destroys. Now, first of all, we can be doubtful that that's the case. Maybe it is. I just I have I don't have any view on this, frankly. I think it's going to create some jobs, it's going to destroy some jobs, and I don't know how it's going to shake out. But even if you suppose that for the sake of argument, it's going to create more jobs than it destroys, that's sort of, in some ways. It's not ethically irrelevant, but it's not enough to the point. And what I mean by that is, okay, even even if the numbers work out so that you know the the jobs created column has a bigger number than the jobs destroyed column, all those people who lost their jobs from the destroyed column, they're real people. They really lost their job. They really don't have a livelihood. They really can't pay their mortgage or their rent. They really do have kids who are depending on that income. Uh, you know, they really do want to send their kids to college. They blah 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 blah. So. It would still be, again, even if it creates more jobs than it destroys, there's still a huge ethical toll on the population on, that it did hurt. And yeah. so this sort of like accounting method of seeing whether whether all is good jobs-wise is sort of uh, – it's too – it's too cold for my taste, too well, ethically, too ethically um, callous. Well, I think the term you used, the, the accounting method, is an apt one because – in accounting, we're talking about dollars and dollars are fungible, but those people, to your point, who lost those jobs yes. aren't necessarily going to be fungible for those new jobs, especially if yeah, the exactly. new jobs created are an upskilled job and there's that sort of skills gap. Yeah, exactly. But and those people might not have the resources by which they there can you you know, go. go to night school. Maybe they can't go to night school. They have kids to take care of. They're with right. the night school. They'd have to pay for a babysitter that they don't have money for, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but it's a nice headline. Which is the nice headline? That you know, it creates more jobs yeah. and destroys. Yeah, it's a nice headline. Yeah, it's just ethically callous. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, you started working on this book over a year ago. Yeah. The book came out a year ago. I think I started writing it February of twenty. February of twenty two, when it came out in July of twenty two. Okay, so so much has happened. No, that's not right. 
Well, Let me like just that, say right? it because that sounds really impressive. We'll just go with that. Okay. You ripped a book out in okay. six months. That sounds great. Um, well, I did. I wrote the first draft in four months. Well, there. Oh, well, that is uh, that, that's actually impressive. Um, so, but so much has changed since the book came out. What did you? What are you? What are you surprised at? Like, you know, you're you're a philosophical guy. Uh, you're a guy who can kind of see around the curve well. What have you been surprised about since you know from you know from what's happened since your book came out in terms of like predictions that you made in it that maybe happened faster or slower or things that you thought would have um, you know impacts you thought would have been had that that we are or aren't seeing like talk talk to us a little bit about like how your views have maybe been affected or changed since the publication a year ago. Okay, so there's I'll, I'll focus on two things. One is what's changed. Uh, I didn't really make a bunch of predictions in the book. I don't do that kind of thing. I just don't, I just don't know. Uh, so, so I don't, and I'll say maybe this is going to happen, maybe that, but I generally stay away from predictions. The one thing that big thing that has changed, we've already mentioned, everybody knows generative AI. That wasn't the thing when I wrote the book. I mean, I wrote it in February and I think it was that November. I yeah. started writing the book in February, turned in the draft by you know May or June or something and went back and forth with the editor. I mean, I think the book was sort of it was done in December, like final, 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 done December. And uh, I think I'm getting the years wrong. I'm not sure. Anyway, GPT came out afterwards. That's, yep. that's the main headline here. And so I didn't say anything about what you can call general purpose or generative AI. So that book is really about task-specific AI. So an AI that you know predicts the risk rating for someone defaulting on a mortgage or some other kind of loan or for insurance premiums or for risk that they're going to commit a crime in the next two years for criminal defense purposes or probation purposes or photo recognition software or, you know, it does a thing. What's interesting about generative AI, especially LLMs, is that you can use them for all sorts of things. You can use LLM across all industries. You can use it in healthcare. You can use it in financial services. You can use it in insurance. You can use it in whatever, automotive. And it doesn't matter, any, any industry. Um, so it's across all industries. Um, all sorts of roles can use it. And you don't, have, you don't necessarily have to, uh, but you may, in some cases you might be wise to reprogram the whole thing. It's not like a whole new AI. It's a what people call a foundational model. So I didn't talk about that in the in that book. I think all of the issues that I talk about in that book also apply to generative AI. 100%, yep. But then there's another set of issues that gender, generative AI raises that um, I don't talk about in that book. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is about changing views. There's I take sort of relatively standard lines in that book about, say, the value of data privacy and explainability in AI and bias in AI. I don't totally think I still hold those views exactly as I did in the book. I'm still glad that I articulated it in the way that I do because the things that I think now are a little bit more controversial, a little bit more cutting edge. And I don't think enterprise needs to trade in the controversial and cutting edge. You need to understand like a perfectly exciting the views that are espoused in that book about the value of explainability, I think are perfectly reasonable views to hold. Um, I think that there are some alternative views that are also reasonable that I'm sort of trying on, so to speak. Um, so for instance, in the book, I talk about the value of explainability from an ethical perspective, that we need to be able to explain the outputs of our AI. It can't, they, they, there's reasons for thinking that they shouldn't be black boxes. Now I say in some in low risk cases, I was I'm fine with black boxes, but in high risk cases, black box seems like a really bad idea. I'm actually getting to come around to thinking, actually, I think there's probably plenty of high risk cases where a black box is acceptable on the condition that it's been sufficiently tested for being safe. 
Okay. So for instance, and I, I actually do say this, I think I say, give this example in the book, but I'm not positive. If, if you've got a black box model that's 99% accurate at predicting whether someone's going to develop cancer and the best doctor is 80% accurate, I'm making up these numbers, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a thought experiment. And you've used this black box model or you've tested it again and again and again and again and again, and it just clearly systematically outperforms our best doctors. You use it. You know, who would you rather, you know, what, what, which would you rather have your daughter diagnosed by the 80% accurate doctor or the 99.9% AI? I think the AI, I think, you know, because of all the testing now. So, so part of me thinks that the, the black box discussion is a bit overhyped because what we really care about is reliability of outputs more than anything else. I, I think that's the case. There might be some exceptions, but I'm broadly inclined. I'm, I'm now broadly inclined to that view. Yeah, I think that's. I think you're right. I think we do really care about uh, outcomes more than inputs. But to the extent, to your point, that um, we're confident that those outcomes are consistently "quote unquote" good, whatever that means. Like, I don't know yeah, how, just, how a I microwave mean, works, but you know how you know. But someone or other does. Someone or other does. I mean, in those cases, okay. there's someone who knows how the hell this thing works. Oh, but right? you're Cars. saying like like it's a true black box. Like no one actually knows. The data scientists don't know. They're like, gotcha. we don't know how it they, they don't know how LLMs work. It's a black box. They've got some hypotheses, some theories that are testing some things or trying to nuts? figure it out. But yeah, it's nuts. It's crazy. But you know. But also, who cares? You, you know, if but, the outcomes but, work, but it's it, who cares? But if it works and it might not work, I mean, I think lots of safety, te- a ton of safety testing needs to be done, especially if we're going to use an LLM in a healthcare setting, which is being done. But if it works really, really, really well, I might not call it intelligent or something like that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to attribute intelligence to an LLM, but I might say it's good enough. It's close. It's, it's functionally equivalent to being highly intelligent, and that's all we need in the, in the, in this case. And why are you loath to attribute and intelligence to it? That's a whole other. That's a whole other conversation. I'll, I'll answer that in a second. But let me say one other thing. The other reason why I'm coming around to just you know loving the black box is that um, the ship has sailed. Yeah, right. Data is only getting more complicated. It's We're getting so much more data. We're there. And one thing that I like to talk about is the rise of quantum computing. So quantum computers are, you know, we can talk about this if you want, but they're insanely powerful computers that can process way, way, way more data than our best supercomputers today can. It can perform calculations in mere seconds that it would take our best supercomputers to perform hundreds of years, thousands of years to do. So then you're going to get, we're going to get quantum AI in all likelihood, which means that it's going to be recognizing patterns across a bonkers quantity of data points. And if it works, it works. And there's no hope of, of understanding what's going on inside that thing. Um, so I just sort of think, yeah, we're, we're just going to get black box models and we need to test the hell out of them for being sufficiently safe in the context in which they're deployed. And that's it. That's not what I say in the book. In the book, I say there's some cases in which we definitely need explainability here, some cases. Uh, I, I might still, there might still be, there's always cases and cases, totally. but I'm much, I'm much less worked up about black boxes now than I was when I wrote the book. Well, imagine the black box of like quantum AI. I mean, that's right, a black that's hole saying. box. I mean, I mean that's exactly. massive. Exactly. Forget it. I mean? No light is escaping that thing. Yeah. 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 And there, there are various technical tools to try to understand, like SHAP is a tool that data scientists will use to try to understand what's going on inside of our AI model. And it might provide some kinds of insights or others. I'm a little bit dubious of that as well because 
there's an extent to which the simplification becomes a distortion of what's going on. And I think that's probably more often the case than is not. But even if you put that to the side, we're just not going to get there with quantum AI. Forget your tools. The, 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 math, the math that it's crunching is just, it's, it's light years beyond where we are, where our, where our own brain is capable of comprehending. Yeah, it's crazy that we've built something. I know you're gonna you're gonna hate what I'm about to say, which I'm trying to bring us back to it. But like, that's like smarter than we are. So let's go back to the why you loathe the intelligence uh, yeah. comment. Oh well, I mean, there's lots to say here, but the the basics of it is that the way that LMs work is that it's stringing together words in a coherent fashion, and what what it's you know it's meant to be a coherent um, string of words, and when we see a bunch of words strung together in a coherent way. We read it as a conversation or the expressions of an intelligent creature, the expressions of a mind. That's not what's going on. It's just doing probability that, that these words, as it were, stick together in a way that I'll get a thumbs up from my programmer, so to speak, to, to anthropomorphize it a little bit. But it's not hooked up to reality in any way. It's not, it doesn't grasp reality, it doesn't grasp concepts. It, it's not a, it, it doesn't appreciate the meanings of words. It's not a meaning thing. It's just, the this these set of words um, is in the same mathematical or close mathematical space to these words in the vast corpus that of words that I've analyzed, so to speak, and that's not intelligence. That's just you know mathematical prediction of the next word. When you and I speak, when the next word comes out of my mouth, I'm not saying that I think you know the words that I'm saying right now are not coming out because I think that they're the most probable words that will match with the words that came before. I'm saying the words that I'm saying based on the meanings of the words and how the meanings of those words connect, not how they happen to show up in text. Yeah, it's kind of analogous to that guy tripping and spilling the paint to some degree. Like it, uh -huh. lacks, that, it lacks that intentionality or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that analogy breaks down at, at, at some level because it's doing more than just spilling. But it, the analogy, you're right. I mean, there's something where it's, it's produced something that looks like a Pollock. Right. But it's not. It's looking. It's doing. It's doing something that looks like it's produced by an intelligent creature, but it's not. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, Good callback. That was nice. That was a you. nice way so, to. Yeah. See, we bring it all together. together. We bring it all together, <laughs> and that's intelligence. Okay. Um, so you also mentioned that, like, um, you had, um, you know, now that generative AI, the proliferation of it was obviously not captured in the book because it came out afterwards. But you have some different thoughts, and there are some different risks that have popped up. Um, on it. And so we'll probably have to dive into those next time because we are, we are really running out of time. See, I knew this should have been a two hour episode, uh, Reed. It's always, <laughs> it's no always a pleasure. I have a whole list hours. of questions we didn't even get to, but, um, this is what, uh, this is what I was hoping for. So, um, Reed, people well, can I have, I have an HBR article coming out sometime soon on specifically the ethical risks pertaining to generative AI. I'll send it oh, to sweet. you. Yeah, please Maybe do. You want to read it? I'll yeah, I'll read it, it and I'll, I'll definitely make a post about it or something. Cause, uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I would love to do that. Um, okay, so people can find you. Uh, they can find you obviously on LinkedIn, but your your organization is called Virtue. Virtue. Um, you do this uh, yeah, they, AI consulting. They go to, yeah, yeah, they go to virtueconsultants.com. We help multinationals, mostly multinationals, not exclusively, but mostly try to you know figure out how to design a customized AI ethical risk framework for their organization and help them implement. But that's, that's the core of it. And the book, and then you can also go to readblackman.com. Yeah. Readblackman.com. And the book is uh, ethical machines and the podcast is ethical machines. So, uh, if you like read as much as I do hit that subscribe button, follow him everywhere, pick that book up. It's a great read, uh, no pun intended. And, uh, man, we will yeah. see you next time, buddy.
Cool. Thanks a lot. This is great. Awesome. Take care. <laughs>